Well, today is Palm Sunday, and we're going to take a look at Luke's version of the triumphal entry. Luke 19, starting in verse 28, and when he had said these things, so he's, he's uh, just outside of Jerusalem, coming up to the Mount of Olives, which is just to the east of the temple, right? So when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, do you notice anything missing? The palms are not mentioned in this gospel, but they are in the other gospels. Right? Now, um, in Luke's gospel, and I've shared this before, I'm fascinated with the donkey, the whole donkey thing. Have you ever noticed how much space is devoted to this donkey, right? Why? Why the, you know, go here, talk to this guy, if, they untie, if you're untying it and they ask you. I mean, eight verses are devoted to the donkey incident. Well, the, the donkey event is a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, you're, you're probably thinking, yeah, isn't there an Old Testament prophecy that he will ride a donkey? Yes, that's in Zechariah, and we're going to look at that. But Jesus is not only fulfilling ancient prophecy, in his telling the disciples to go get the donkey and them following through, that is an example of, I'm going to call it, real time prophecy. All right? So here's what I want to do. I want us to look at three kinds of prophecy that Jesus fulfills that's all reflected in today's text. We want to look at real-time fulfillment of prophecy, and then there's ancient prophecy that he fulfills, but I'm going to make a distinction because there's ancient prophecy that Jesus fulfills on purpose the riding of the donkey into Jerusalem. He's, he is purposely saying, I know 
that doing this is fulfilling an ancient prophecy. But then we also want to talk about ancient prophecy that's out of his control, humanly speaking, not divinely speaking. So three types of prophecy all reflected in our passage today. So first, let's talk about real-time prophecy. Okay? This event of him telling the disciples, go over here and untie the, uh, the donkey, and if anybody asks you, I believe that this event is portraying Jesus as a prophet in the shadow of Samuel. Remember, when we studied 1st and 2nd Samuel, there's the event where Samuel is told, he's the prophet, he is told to tell Saul, young Saul, that he's going to be the first king of Israel. So what happens is Saul is a donkey shepherd. These donkeys keep popping up, right? And his father's donkeys run away. So Saul goes looking for these lost donkeys, and he runs into Samuel, the prophet. And Samuel says, you are going to be the first king of Israel. And Saul isn't so sure about this. He doesn't believe Samuel, so Samuel needs to show that he really is a prophet from God. So he gives him this prophecy. He says, when you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? So you're going to meet these two guys with a very specific message by Rachel's tomb. Then, verse 3, you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. That's rather specific, right? And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of Philistines, and there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And you know what happens? Saul leaves, and all of these very specific things happen. What's the point? Samuel is a prophet from God, and if, if what he said can happen in real time, then his predictions about the distant future must be true also. Right? I've, I've used this, this illustration before. Let's say, um, Brian, can I pick on you? All right, here we go. If I say, well, after church today, you're going to go to Randall Road to uh, Walmart, and there you're going to uh, you're going to meet a guy with a with a blue Cubs hat, and he's going to tell you, "Stop worrying about the keys you lost. They're in your pocket." And you reach in, and there they are. 
And then you go to Trader Joe's and you meet a set of triplets. With One of them's got three kittens. One of them has three McChickens and one of them has a can of Red Bull. The guy with the McChickens will give you two of the McChickens. Then you'll go to Jimmy John's because you're still hungry. Outside of Jimmy John's, there will be a Salvation Army band playing with a bassoon, a piccolo, a glockenspiel, and a ukulele. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will become the lead singer of this band. (laughs) And you will sing Bye Bye Miss American Pie with the Salvation Army band, which is one of their favorite songs. Now, if all that happened... You wouldn't just go, well, it's just another normal day. No, you would go, that Pastor Brian's getting direct revelation from God, right? So, um, there, you're done. You're <laughs> Relax. <laughs> but just be careful on the way home, okay? So Jesus says, go into the village in front of you. Where on entering, you will find a colt, that's a young donkey, tied, And no one has ever sat on this colt before. How would he know that? Untie it and bring it here. Now, realize that a donkey was like a car. This was somebody's car. So it would be like like me saying, well, why don't you go to Walmart and find the most expensive car you can there and open the door and there will be keys in it Take it. Somebody's going to say, whoa, what are you doing here? Right? If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this. Here's the magic words. The Lord has need of it. That's exactly what happened. Somebody said, what are you doing? Whoa, 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 what are you doing? The Lord needs it. Oh, okay. Take it. Right? This is simply an illustration that Jesus is a prophet. And he's showing his prophetic ability to know the future and to know circumstances in real time with ordinary events. None of these is a spectacular miracle, but it's real time ordinary events. You know, a similar occurrence takes place Thursday night of Holy Week when at the Last Supper, Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me tonight three times before the rooster crows. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, very specific. And, you know, Peter says, no, I would never do that. I mean, so here's a prophecy that Peter's actually aware of, and he's going to try to prevent it from happening, and it still happens. Now, let me introduce probably one of the biggest um, apparent contradictions. When skeptics of the Bible, they say, oh, the Bible's full of errors. They point to this as one of them. So here... Uh, Matthew 26, 34, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. In Mark's version, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, 
twice, you will deny me three times. So, let's do the rooster count. Okay. So, if you're reading Matthew, it's you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And in Mark, it's you will, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. And in Mark's gospel, after the first denial, there is a rooster crow. Then there's a second denial, then the third denial, and then the, the second rooster crow. So um, how do you reconcile this apparent rooster crow contradiction? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Rita, I know you want it. Steve? No? You don't? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, he, here's, here's why I would. Here's why I would try to reconcile this. I believe that the Bible is inerrant, that there are no errors in it. Now, some people want to restrict the inerrancy of the Bible. They say, well, just to matters of, of uh, salvation and, and ethics. But it can have historical errors. Uh-uh. If, it, if the Bible is inspired by God, it can't have historical errors. So you say, well, well, who cares? Well, at some point, I guarantee you, you're going to come across somebody, if not in real life, or, on the, or it'll be on the internet, where they'll say, Bible's full of errors, what about the whole rooster thing? What do you say? Okay. Well, um, here's, here's what I would say. This is not a contradiction if there's something unique about this rooster, about this final rooster. So let me give you a, an, an illustration of, of how, uh, of something that would be similar. Let's say, who's, who's in the final four? Or is there, name a team. Who's your team? Oh, Loyola made it. Okay, I was, I, I, thanks, I recorded that. I was going to watch that today. All right. All right. Was that a good game? It was an awesome game. Okay. Did it go into overtime? No? Okay, thanks. Well, there goes my afternoon. All right. So, um, let's say, let's say, Robert, you are in the, in the championship game and God gives you a prophecy. So you guys got to pay attention. You never know when you're going to get picked on. Max, you're next. Okay. And the prophecy is before the fourth buzzer, you're going to hit five three-pointers. Okay. So now, so you get this, this prophecy in a dream, and then you wake up and you, you go tell your family, you know, God spoke to me in a dream. Um, now, you can sum that up. It's true that before the, f- the four buzzers, uh, the, the, you could mention all four of them, but that last buzzer is kind of unique. You know why? Because that's the last one. The game is over. So it would be accurate to sum that up to say, I'm going to hit five threes before the buzzer. Because that last buzzer is important. Now, question, is this last rooster crow important. There's a uh, uh, kind of a classic book, the McClintock and Strong uh, Biblical Cyclopedia, not encyclopedia, but the cyclopedia, and they comment on the final rooster. 
the cock usually crows several times about midnight and again about break of day. The latter time, because he then crows loudest, and his shrill clarion is most useful by summoning man to his labors, obtained the appellation of the cock crowing emphatically. In other words, when you talk about the cock crowing, most of the time you're, you're talking about the final one before dawn because it's waking you up. But everybody knew there were other sounds of a rooster crowing. So Mark is giving the detailed picture. Matthew's just summing it up. There you go. All right, all that just to show you that Jesus makes prophecies, prophesies, in real time, and it's fulfilled in real time. Now, let's talk about a second category of prophecy. Ancient prophecy that Jesus fulfills, but he does this on purpose. So, uh, what we're talking about here is his riding on the donkey being an intentional fulfillment of Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9 was written hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, and it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. So something's going to happen in Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now you go, okay, but what king is this referring to? Couldn't it just be any old king? We'll keep reading. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. This is not just a, a little king of Judah. He's going to come into Jerusalem, but this is a king of the world, from sea to sea. So, the, the, the Jewish people were looking for a Jewish Messiah, but who would be a worldwide uh, Messiah, and he would be identified when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. So what Jesus is doing here is he is for the first time publicly confirming what all the scuttlebutt was about. Is he the Messiah? Is he the Messiah? He won't give us a straight answer. Is he the Messiah? He rides the donkey into Jerusalem stating, I'm the Messiah. Right? You know, up to this point, when that question came up, he would do a miracle and people would say, is he the Messiah? And he would tell them, shh, don't talk about that. In uh, Matthew 16, where he says, who do people say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus says, he strictly, it says, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ, the Messiah. Shh, don't tell anybody. At the transfiguration, he becomes glowing, bright, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Be quiet. Shh. He heals the deaf man. And Jesus charged them to tell no one 
He heals a leper, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests. Okay? Raises the little girl from the dead, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Why? Well, a real pragmatic reason why is because the crowds were so thick that he couldn't move around. Okay, that's a real pragmatic reason. But the ultimate reason is this. What happened when he announced publicly that he was the Messiah? Five days later, they killed him. He had to stay alive long enough to get to Jerusalem to get killed. So keep it quiet, keep it quiet, so I can do ministry and preach and do miracles and not get killed yet. Right? So his riding the donkey into Jerusalem was an on-purpose fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Now, skeptics come along and they go, well, how do we know he didn't do all of these things to fulfill prophecy on purpose? Could have been a, uh, an Old Testament student, just an ordinary man, and he knew about this, he knew about that, and he just purposely made it all happen. Now, he did purposely make some things happen, but let's take a look at the third category now. Ancient prophecy that's totally out of the control of any man. Right? You can ride a donkey on purpose, but you can't control where you're born. Right? Especially when your parents live in Nazareth, and the prophecy says you're supposed to be born in Bethlehem, 90 miles south. Yet... In Micah 5, 2, hundreds of years before his birth, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. And remember, even Herod called the scholars in and said, Hey, where is the... Uh, the Messiah is supposed to be born, and they pull out the scroll of Micah, and they go, oh, that's, that's a no-brainer. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. How do you pull that one off? How do you pull off the city of your birth? And then, how do you pull off the details of your death that are out of, control, out of your control? So let me look at, look at uh, Matthew. And I want to point out a number of things going on here. And then we're going to look at Psalm 22. All right, so in Matthew 27, so when they had crucified him. So crucifixion involves being nailed to a cross. Your arms, probably your wrists, and your feet are pierced with nails, spikes. All right? So keep that word pierced in mind. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. So the soldiers have his clothes. He's naked, hanging on a cross. His clothes are at the foot of the cross. And the soldiers have done this so many times, they don't even care about the agony that these, these people are in. They just want the clothes. Uh, there's one, one garment left. They don't want to rip it, so they, they roll, die, roll, roll a die. Okay? So keep that in mind. 
Then they sat down and kept watch over him there and over his head. They put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him by wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the Son of God. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. And look at these words of the specific mockery. He trusts God. Like, he trusts God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. So here's a guy who trusts in God. Yeah, if God really cares about him. So keep that specific mockery in mind. For he said, I'm the son of God, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So keep that cry in mind. It's called the cry of dereliction. And then one thing I'm going to pull in from John's gospel. Right before he dies, last thing he says is, it is finished. But right before that, he says, I thirst. He was was dying of blood loss and dehydration. So, there's the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me, forsaken me. There's the mocking that goes on and with very specific words. Uh, in crucifixion, none of his bones were broken, but they, they do say that many times the shoulders become dislocated. Right? Um, he is thirsty, he is pierced, and his clothes are gambled away by lots. So now, 1000 B.C., Psalm 22. To the choir master, okay. according to the doe of the dawn, so there's a specific tune that David wants this put to, David writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, question, is he speaking in the place of Jesus Or is there something going on in his own life where he is crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Scholars can can figure that out. But Jesus repeats these very words on the cross. And you go, well, has he lost sight of God? No, he he knew that, that he would be resurrected from the dead. But on the cross, in a very real way, he was forsaken as God the Father turns his face away from him. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, uh, from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make 
mouths at me. They wag their heads. Here's what they say. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Virtually the same words that the religious leaders say to Jesus. Many bowls encompass me. Strong bowls of bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard. My tongue sticks to my jaws. Dehydration, thirst. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have, look at this, pierced my hands and feet. 1,000 years B.C., they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. How do you control all that? How do you make that happen? Right. Now, let me, uh, let me close with this word pierced. Okay? All your English translations say pierced. If you were to get a Hebrew Bible written in Hebrew, you know what it would say? Like a lion, they're at my hands and feet. Because the Hebrew word for pierced, and the Hebrew word for lion are almost identical. There's just a little stroke of a pen difference. Okay? So in the Hebrew Bible, it's going to be translated, or not translated, but just in Hebrew, it's going to say, um, like a lion there at my hands and feet. So Jewish scholars would say, you Christians, you've got the wrong word there. Okay? How, would, how would we respond? Well, first of all, you could say this. Even if it's not there, what about all the rest of it? Okay? But look at this. The Hebrew... Bible that had, has been preserved over time, um, the, the earliest version that we had was the Masoretic text. The Masoretes were scrupulous about copying it. Uh, they would count all the letters to make sure there was a, a, the right amount in each line, and then they would destroy the earlier copies, right? And the newest, the freshest copies would be retained. The earliest version we had 
of the Masoretic text was from about, about the 9th century A.D. And the word in Psalm 22 was lion. Okay. In 1947, there was a shepherd boy who threw a rock in a cave in Israel by the Dead Sea and heard something shatter. And he went in the cave, and there were jars with tons of manuscripts in them, all kinds of manuscripts. But virtually the entire Old Testament was found in different manuscripts. The Hebrew in the Dead Sea Scrolls says pierced. Dead Sea Scrolls that were found date at least 125 years before the coming of Christ. And it says pierced. Now also, the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek before the coming of Christ. That's called the Septuagint. So there was a Greek translation and it's estimated that Psalm 22 was translated or, 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 the, or the, the copy of the Septuagint uh, that, that we look at is 257 B.C. In other words, there is evidence from the Hebrew Bible and the Greek Bible long before the birth of Christ that the word should be pierced. Right? Now, again... Let's say that's all wrong. The closing argument is this. Forget Psalm 22. Zechariah, we already looked at Zechariah 9. Zechariah 12 says this. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. This day has not happened yet, but Jerusalem's going to be in the center of the news. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, now who's the me? Who's talking? God, the Lord. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, so God is going to be pierced. By the way, the Hebrew word here is a totally different word than the one in Psalm 22. There's no question that this is pierced. When you look it up, it's uh, all over the Old Testament. It means to be run through with a sword or a spear. So the people in Jerusalem, there's a spirit of grace that's going to be poured upon them when Jerusalem's in the center of the news and nations are coming against it. God's going to pour out a spirit of grace upon them and they're going to look on him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a 
firstborn. I think a lot of Jews are going to come to faith in the one who has been pierced. Okay. Now, just so you know, we got this right. The first part of this was fulfilled, says John. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And now here are two things that are fulfilled. One, not one of his bones will be broken. Now, you go, what verse is that? Well, there isn't a verse that says not one of the bones of the Messiah will be broken. This comes from the Passover. The Jews were to take a lamb, each family, slay the lamb, put the blood over their door so the angel of death would pass over, and then they would have, and they still do, they have a ceremony where they eat the lamb. It's called the Seder. But in preparing the lamb, you don't break any bones. John says that whole thing that Jews are still doing today is fulfilled in Jesus. The, spear, the nails didn't break any bones. The spear didn't break any bones. But the Passover preparation of the lamb was a prophecy all pointing to Jesus who died, but his bones were not broken. And another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And at the cross, they were at least looking on him. But the final fulfillment will be when massive numbers of Jews see that Jesus really is the Messiah, the one whom they have pierced. What's the point of all this? Jesus is not only a prophet, but he fulfills prophecy, sometimes in real time, sometimes on purpose, and sometimes when it's totally out of his control. He is your Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that it confirms in amazing ways that Jesus is the Messiah. Thank you that he is the prophet, the priest, and the king. Thank you that his words are 100% trustworthy. They're fulfilled in real time. They're fulfilled, yet to be fulfilled, and he fulfills ancient prophecies. Lord, thank you that we can have confidence in your gospel. Thank you that you've given us this written revelation. Thank you that it's a supernatural book. And Jesus, we praise you for being the lamb that was slain.
your name we pray.